Hail och säl. What do you do to unwind? Do you carve a new runic inscription over an ancient petroglyph? Maybe you crush your tax man under a massive stone table. Or maybe you have a sauna that you can heat. Maybe you dig holes, play a dwarf fortress, burn witches, drink drinks, pet pets, nail nails, carve obscure images into glacial erratics, or maybe you throw rocks at neighboring tribes. Maybe you search for Bigfoot. Or maybe, as some people in this episode, you compose elaborate, counterfactual, and ultra-racist treatises on the origins and destiny of mankind. Maybe you like to concoct in your mind's eye what sundry animal-human hybrids might look like, or how they might react to seeing your naked body. Maybe you fear the thought of having these creatures set loose upon you. Or maybe the real horror is that you kind of like it. I don't know. I don't want to know either. But it's conceivable that people have existed who had fantasies of that very kind. It is even quite possible that you will encounter them here in this very episode. But even if that speculation is true, their greatest sin, arguably, is not necessarily that they wanted to be buggered by ape men. Some people like to read. I don't really read fiction. In fact, I don't really often get to read, apart from stuff that is immediately relevant to Brute Norse one way or another. So it's a lucky accident, then, that we talk about so many eclectic things on this podcast. If I want to entertain myself, I often immerse myself in some of the more crazy things that people have cooked up through the ages. Besides ancient matters, I love reading about things that are morbid and strange. Preferably, off-the-bend insane. This episode is the result of one such rabbit hole. Vaguely connected to some of the tangents that I've been talking about in some of the previous episodes. And you know how it is with rabbit holes. Nature intervenes, and one thing leads to the next, and suddenly you've tumbled so deep down that there's nothing left but madness on all sides. At which point it starts to really drain you, you know, like a vampire. I can still laugh and snicker when I talk to my wife or my friends about this, but presenting it in a coherent way, like for this podcast, it's exhausting. This is meant to be kind of a spiritual successor to the kinky runestones episode so it's supposed supposed to be kind of lighthearted and upbeat you know full of jokes and so on but it's really hard to make this any goofier than it is in real life you know i i've just been bested there's nothing i can add to this that the sources don't already say themselves this stuff is unintentionally funny on a level that i could never compete with but it's also fucked up in a way that I think you're gonna have trouble believing your own ears if you haven't been exposed to these ideologies before. Needless to say, you're gonna encounter some characters in this episode, some of which may seem random at first, but most of them are joined together by common fixations and talents. This episode has a sinister and serious backdrop to it, and uh, to even be able to tell this stuff in a way that is both irreverent and serious in my usual style, I had to look up a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't really want to talk about in this episode, but I feel like I couldn't just simply talk about novelty and curiosities, because that would kind of come at the expense of some important details. To be honest, I already don't get to make even nearly as many episodes as I want to, and I just can't make them fast enough. So I don't want to make a million episodes about Ariosophy and other controversial ideologies. I would much rather reference them where they are relevant and not shy away from them, because, quite frankly, it's kind of dreary to work with. 
but it's important, and I don't see many other people talking about it, so why not me? Half the point about this whole Scandi-Futurist shtick is to demonstrate that the past is actually part of the present, and that means I can't really skip those parts, can I? I'm not gonna lie, this was a terribly uh, difficult episode to record, uh, partially because I was terribly hungover when I started recording it, as if I was trying to subconsciously sabotage myself uh, to save my sanity, but um, I think if there was ever an episode to record hungover, then this is certainly it. Obviously, I would not listen to this in the presence of anybody who might already have doubts about your moral character, and I bet I don't really have to say this, but of course it's going to be a very explicit episode. This is Apeling Panspermia, or the Vulkish Saga of the Lemurian Ape Craze and the Demise of the Electric Ario-Germanic Hermaphro- of the Elect- of the Electric Ario-Germanic Hermaphrodite Elites from Atlantis at the- Det är så tjusande, så underbart, rikt brusande om blott. Det leves rätt. Glöm allt trist och vardagsgrott, allt tråkigt och fult, allt dumt och smått. Så blir allting så lätt. Klä dig liksom jag i frack och leende min. Och lägg bort din trista splin. Det hänt mig många, många gånger. Att unga damer ömt jag kyst Jag har ej rönt motstånd Det blott stammat fack För jag var en herre i frack The song that we're listening to right now is called En herre i frack Which means a man in a coat The melody of which was composed by a man called Jonny Bode And you don't have to write it down, because we're going to be repeating that name many times for the next 10-15 minutes or so. Yoni Buda was many things. He was a composer and a crooner with a golden voice. And, uh, well, (laughs) Yoni Buda was larger than life, let's just put it that way. A man who loved to present the glamorous outward image of excess and opulence, while a more realistic depiction probably would have been of a man off his ass drunk, with sauce on his shirt and his wet ass planted in the gutter. Now this song, in Harry Frack, it's a song about how a man can lose everything but his dignity and the shirt on his back, in this case a coat, and then just get back into the saddle, will to power, like the world is still his oyster, and he can take anything that life throws at him. When I first heard this song, I assumed that Joni Bode had written the lyrics, and so I thought, huh, okay, a man in a coat. Obviously this song is about a flasher, and that might seem like an unobvious interpretation, but bear with me. Then I realized that the guy who wrote the lyrics is actually Jösta Ekman, who is also the guy singing in this recording right now. But as I found out researching this episode, Bode actually recorded other versions of this song later on, including one called A Man in a Hat, which actually is about a flasher. If you take these two versions of the song and mash them together, you get kind of a metaphor for Yoni Bode's life. 
but even then, kind of an embellished version compared to the real thing. By the time Yoni Buda died at the age of 71 in 1983, his life had been a clown car of comedic disaster, coasting along on his talents which were making music, telling lies, and committing petty crime. In the 1930s, he lived with his old schoolmate Josta Ekman, whom we just talked about. Allegedly, Bode lived like a lazy son in the Ekman household and was eventually thrown out when he was caught trying to pawn off Ekman's silverware. Many of us would probably have looked back on such behavior and considered it a low point in our life, but Bode was barely getting started. A perpetually broke socialite and all-round party boy. Buddha would make ends meet by embezzling Persian rugs and writing counterfeit checks, or otherwise using every trick in the book not to pay the tab for his extravagant consumption, which led him to be banned from several of Stockholm's clubs, bars, and hotels. When he was ultimately put up for a criminal psychiatric evaluation in 1936, the report allegedly noted that Buddha had a small penis. One reason we know this is because Buddha complains about this in his diary, where he states that a doctor should know that a penis shrinks in a cold room. But then he puts in this little jab where he says that uh, also the doctor's unimpressive looks uh, contributed to uh, the shrinkage of his little uh, Yggdrasil. Buddha was eventually locked up in a mental institution, and uh, because this was in the 1930s, uh, he was forcibly sterilized due to his untiring delinquency the sterilization of Buddha may have ended his dynasty before it even began, but had no discernible effect on the tornado of mischief this enfant terrible would cause for the rest of his lifetime. In fact, it may well have had the opposite effect. Because these are definitely the actions of a man bereaved of his legacy with absolutely nothing to lose. Among his list of endless delinquencies, we find him carrying a collapsible wheelchair, which he used to gain free entry and uh, formidable seating at sporting events, and any other context where there was benefit to be gained. His entire life he was notorious for going out on the town and keeping the drinks flowing generously for friends and strangers alike, ordering champagne for the table, always offering to dish out for another round, and another, and another. At the end of the night, when it was time to pay up, he'd excuse himself to make a phone call and just fuck off into the night. It's impressive how there's just always another story about this guy. How did he have the endurance for it? It's like he's possessed by some superhuman force, ostensibly the god Loki, a sleazy, unrepentant asshole whose trickster levels was completely off the charts. The 1940s come along and it's World War II, yippee. What could Buddha possibly be up to? Well, of course, he's developed a fetishistic fascination with National Socialism. So he leaves the mental hospital and goes to Finland to volunteer to fight the Bolsheviks alongside the Nazis, but is rejected almost immediately and sent back to Sweden for being such an irredeemable Grobian, but not without a fancy, tight, sexy, fascist uniform, which he starts to wear out on the town. This led him to be ostracized by the Swedish musical community. And to cope with not being able to perform in Sweden, he goes to Nazi-occupied Norway, where he performs cabarets for the Quisling regime, among other things doing uh, Winston Churchill impersonations and composing anti-Swedish ragtime songs. But alas, it was not destined to last. It didn't take long before he himself was detained by the Gestapo due to his signature misdemeanors and all-round suspiciousness. Apparently he was also suspected of being a spy, which led him to later present himself as an international man of mystery. 
He spent five weeks in a concentration camp before he was deported back to Sweden, where he was now completely blacklisted. But uh, that's not the end of it, we're barely scratching the surface. So, in the decades following the war, Buda went to East Germany and was soon thereafter banned from East Germany. Uh, then he went to Vienna, Austria, where he on one occasion claimed in a press letter to be the true composer of Am der schönen blauen Donau, uh, as, you know, the Blue Danube. Though in reality, as everybody knows, it was composed by Johann Strauss in 1866. At some point he even claimed to have been the personal chamber singer of Joseph Goebbels. Then, uh, at some point, uh, some poor woman married Yoni Boda and um, uh, then divorced him, uh, which led him to sue her for partial custody of the dog that uh, they owned together, which allowed him to come to her place and antagonize her with his presence every Sunday. Uh, but that didn't last too long, fortunately, because he was ultimately banned from Austria as well. In Sweden, having been completely blacklisted by Swedish broadcasting, Buda was forced to operate under various pseudonyms after the war, basically taking any gig he could, whether it be music or petty crime. He even claimed to have been Sweden's very first pornographer. In case it wasn't abundantly clear by now, he was kind of an unreliable narrator, and so we must take everything he says with a fair grain of salt. One thing that is undeniable is his influence on the niche musical genre of schönsrock, or genital rock. A sort of punk-influenced micro-genre that, to many, seems as quintessentially Swedish as ABBA and Volvo station wagons. With lyrical concepts addressing topics like fornication, retardation, sodomy, and Nazism, which, as the fates would have it, are gonna be the main recurring themes of this actual episode. Most Scandinavians today associate Buda with the erotic novelty music that he put out in the 1960s. First and foremost, a record called Songs of the Brothel Madame, featuring timeless classics like Jerk Me Up and Down with White Gloves On Jerk Me Up and Down with White Gloves On and the rather controversial ditty Negro Joe about a Finnish hooker and a well-endowed black man, which amazingly he's actually supposed to have performed in front of Jimi Hendrix in 1968, uh, and uh, was apparently bemused and confused about the whole thing, which apparently happened at a, an after-party in Yoni Boda's apartment, where Boda was wearing nothing but socks and underwear the entire time. He's also noteworthy for releasing two albums of gay erotic songs at a time where you were not supposed to talk about this whatsoever. And it's quite possible that if Yoni Boda had not been, well, had he not been Yoni Boda, that he would have been one of the most cherished songwriters in all of Sweden. In a mainstream sense, and not just as this peculiar cult figure. His musical talents are certainly beyond questioning. He wrote an absurd number of songs, many of which have since been made more famous by other musicians, such as the opera singer Jussi Björling. But the bottom line is that Joni Buda was a menace. All of this is kind of, you know, it's fun to talk about in itself, but none of this in itself qualifies Joni Buda to be talked about on this podcast. Rather, the reason is an obscure book that he published in 1950 called De Itid, which he claims to have written partially in occupied Norway and had a, a network of spies smuggled over to, to Sweden by him. The purpose of which was to vindicate his efforts during the war and prove that he had always been a Swedish patriot and staunch anti-Nazi. Though by his own admittance, uh, his accounts were partially fictionalized for the sake of literature, which probably means they were 100% fictionalized and it was clearly intended to paint himself as an international man of mystery and erotic excess. But why is this book so interesting? 
I mean to us here on this podcast, which is supposedly about ancient Scandinavia and our reception of it, right? So there's a short passage in the book that was deemed interesting enough to be included in the blurb on the back cover, even though Buddha himself admitted that he had only heard about this secondhand and didn't actually experience the anecdote himself, probably to give himself some plausible deniability if he was challenged on its content. So he's sort of inviting the reader to make up their own mind about that particular account, though insisting that all of the other horse shit is true. And I have been trying to phrase this in different ways and find clever ways to bridge this uh, part, but ultimately I'm just at a loss of words, as there's nothing I can really add to make this more or less weird than it already is, so I'm just going to present it as it is. What Yoni Buda says is that the Gestapo used insane dwarf men of apish appearance, and that's a direct quote by the way, as a blackmailing tool that they let loose upon the wives and daughters of patriots who refused to tell the Nazis what they wanted. So basically the Nazis had monkeys which were trained to rape Norwegians. A very, shall we say, vivid description of such a creature is provided in the book as a chained, one meter tall, insane, knuckle-dragging ape dwarf with a disproportionately big head that gargles and jumps up and down with perverse excitement at the mere sight of a woman and producing from a pouch in its skin a grotesque, hairy, comically huge... Well, I think you know what I mean. If only we could dismiss this Nazi hentai as a product of Buddha's absurd imagination. But all of us know that that would be way too easy. The hole, unfortunately, goes way deeper than this. It seems completely clear to me, at least, that uh, Yoni Buddha got these ideas from a man called Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, whom we will talk more about later in the episode. The only thing I cannot quite piece together is how he got these ideas. It's possible he picked it up in Germany or Austria or something like that, but uh, I cannot speculate, I'm sorry. If somebody else knows, please write me, I would love to hear about it. It's just that the context and the description of the apeling is just too eerily close to Liebenfels's own writings that I refuse to believe it's coincidence. And I should probably give a well-deserved shout-out to the uh, Swedish podcast Dolda Fakta. Uh, for making me aware of this connection in the first place. Really good stuff. Not to imply anything about my fans, but uh, listeners to this podcast will be no strangers to apish perversions. As many of you will recall the episode called Kinky Runestones from Outer Space, where we get into the weird and forgotten UFO works of Varg Vikernes, which shares a similar fixation with apes and human sexuality. And this seems to be kind of a leitmotif on the far right, especially in kind of esoteric circles, where apes seem to have this connotation of sexual degeneracy and dysgenics. That's a layover that goes more than a hundred years back in time. The reason behind this lies in the eclectic influences of many of the folkish movements, bouncing back and forth between science and proto-New Age, from Darwinism to Theosophy, filtered through the lens of a sort of cultural chauvinism. And it all comes from this notion that primates derive from us, not the other way around. So it has an aspect of evolutionary thought in there, but also legitimized and tweaked by the theosophical concept of the root races. Though not everything I say here will apply to all folkish groups in, in this period of time that we're going to be talking about. I'm specifically going to hone in on groups that uh, answered to the term Ariosophy. Now this is veering dangerously close to what some people might call the Nazi occult. And it's problematic and simplifies things a little bit, but let's just stick with it for now. If only just to debunk the idea that uh, this stuff is only really about 
perversion of Norse mythology, and an attempt at co-opting ancient Scandinavian culture. It would have been easy if that was the case, but it fails to communicate the point that Ariosophy is a lot more fucking strange than that. It would be entirely wrong to talk about these people as if they were trying to revive the ancient uh, historical tradition, even though they would maybe even claim that that's what they're doing. But we have to understand what they mean when they're talking about that stuff, because their vision of the past is so far off from any academic consensus. You know, it just doesn't compute. And more often they're kind of grasping at straws to invent these pro-Aryan anti-theories to counterweight whatever they don't like. Like Einstein's theory of relativity. Ah, it's too Jewish, we gotta come up with something else. How about, um, everything's made of ice? That makes sense, right? Actually, let's not talk about the world ice doctrine for now. <laughs> I think we have more than enough on our plate already. Let's talk about Ariosophists and Völkish movements and their general line of thought. And while we're visiting this subject, we have to at least touch upon the topic of neo-paganism in the Third Reich particularly. Let's ask a loaded question here. Were the Ariosophists a neo-pagan movement? Hmm, I don't know, that depends, kind of. It's like Scientology for German racists in the beginning of the 1900s. They're basically looking to reconcile pseudoscience with the sort of fake lore, legendary past, and more often than not, Christianity through some sort of ethnocentric lens. So I think it's fair to say it's not your local Ozatru organization. Any pagan mythology that gets caught up into this is basically incidental to being perceived as a Germanic cultural expression. So does that mean that there were no Nazi or far-right German or Scandinavian nationalists who identified as pagans at all? No, I wouldn't go that far. Well, what is a pagan anyway? Most church institutions would probably consider the Ariosophists heretics. But let's call the other thing, I don't know, historical Nazi heathens or something. Those people did exist, but only really in an extremely tiny scene, partially of Scandinavian Nazis in the 30s and 40s, who were largely inspired by German Völkisch movements of a distinctly different flavor in the 1930s. So this is a, a few decades after the Ariosophical Salad Days, when many of the Völkisch movements were arguably just clubs for witchy nudists or barefoot proto-hippies yodeling in the hillsides. By the 1930s, however, it seems that the dominant strains of Völkisch thought was distinctly anti-fun in any way whatsoever, and the rise of these Nazi Puritans led to the banishment of many of the former organizations. On paper, they were looking to paganism as an alternative religion for Germanic people to kick out the foreign Christianity, as it were. And then you look into it, and you realize it's just a LARP for racist atheists. And they even say it themselves, that they think that Norse mythology is basically just an elaborate metaphor for racial purity without any other metaphysical content. And this is basically what people like Varg believe today, even though he changes the referential and aesthetic backdrop every few years. And I'm not saying this to throw shade on a man that hardly anybody takes seriously to begin with. I'm saying it because the similarities are uncanny. Some of the people involved with the so-called Ragnarok Circle in Norway in the 30s and 40s expressed the idea that as long as the Nordic race remains undiluted, we'll possess the necessary blood wisdom that allows us to intuitively understand the secrets of the blood, which are so profound that they cannot even be expressed openly, and were instead encoded into the myths of our ancient ancestors. I wish somebody told me this before I got my degree that all I actually needed was my 23andMe results. Now, it could be those 90-something percent of me that are Scandinavian that's talking, but I don't think that uh, there's anything very profound or difficult to comprehend about this at all. When you read them talking about their own worldview, they're just kind of dancing around the fact that it's all about fucking. 
So they can call it whatever they want, but half the time it's social Darwinists being horny, while their predecessors were horny theosophists. And either way, we're not really talking about a ton of people either. In Germany, this amounts to a few thousand people in a population of 60 million. The Norwegian pseudo-pagans of the Ragnarok Circle, for instance, were inspired by the work of Mathilde Ludendorff, the third wife of General Erik Ludendorff. Mathilde was a psychiatrist who had disowned Christianity and wrote an entire treatise about how belief in the occult causes insanity. Instead, she proposed a sort of ethnic pantheism of the sort I previously described, which boldly rejected any sort of outside influence. And so, in this sense, paganism is really the only native tradition you can turn to, especially because Ludendorff identified three enemies of the race, the Judaic, the Roman, and oddly, the Tibetan, whereby she basically meant the Jews, the church, and Eastern religions. This also includes any occult or esoteric movement, especially Freemasonry. If you ignore the anti-Christian sentiment of Ludendorff, these are fairly common Völkisch attitudes after Hitler came to power. And a far cry from the earlier Völkisch groups of the 1910s and the 1920s where Kabbalah, Freemasonry, and Oriental concepts such as karma were commonly interpreted to suit the German nationalist filter. But my point is that the Nazis had some kind of backlash against a lot of this stuff and thought that all this flirting with alternative spirituality was a threat to their political goal. Not without reason either. Some of the aforementioned Ludendorffian Norwegians associated with the Ragnarok Circle were unhappy about the German occupation of Norway and also dabbled in casual backroom conspiracies to assassinate Vidkun Quisling, the German puppet whose party, National Samling, or National Gathering, was perceived as being bourgeois and Protestant. But this was, again, a very small minority of people. Still, there are scattered examples of people who had some degree of official influence on Hitler's Germany with interests at least adjacent to Ariosophy. One being the amateur archaeologist Hermann Wirth, who somehow managed to become the head of the SS Annenerbe for a while, before he was pushed out by fucking Heinrich Himmler for being too much of a weirdo. He argued that the original Aryan religion was a matriarchal solar cult from Atlantis. Atlantis being the navel of a global Aryan civilization. And this is the reason why the SS had this weird phase where they were sending people to Tibet and whatnot. Then after the war, this guy rebranded slightly and actually managed to pick up a niche audience among Native Americans before he was found out and I suppose died in disgrace. And then you have Karl Maria Willigut, whom you could probably call a genuine Nazi occultist, who was kind of a confidant of Heinrich Himmler for a while, who founded an offshoot of Ariosophy called Irminism, where he claimed, among other things, that Norse mythology, as we see it in the Eddas, is an insincere report of Germanic spirituality, and that the Bible was originally written in Proto-Germanic and such, alleging that the Germans were Christian even 200,000 years BC. It will come as no surprise that he was kind of a student of uh, Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, the apeling architect we'll be talking about later. So in case we hadn't thoroughly debunked it yet, Ariosophy and other Völkisch alternative religious movements were hardly an attempt at reviving the religion of the Vikings. Many Ariosophists were trying to reconcile their image of the legendary past with Masonic-style secret societies, Theosophy, Jesuits, Esoteric Christianity. But obviously with intense doses of Germanic nationalism tied into it, which completely independently of this looked to the Nordic area for some sort of ancient mythology that it didn't automatically have access to. Because you have to remember that Germany as a monumental political entity was kind of a new thing. This was the age of nation states. So they were looking, they were looking into the past to justify this. And sometimes they reached for the Scandinavian or Icelandic material for that. 
And I mean, if you're looking at it through the perspective of Germans at the turn of the century, grasping at straws, trying to find out what they are, you can kind of see that this is a pathology of German identity politics at a time where multi-ethnic empires are crumbling and where they're just trying to elbow away anything that kind of speaks against their German particularism, basically. And some of these people are looking to the North for what they believe is the undiluted expression of Germanicness, as if such a thing could ever exist. It's kind of understandable when you have a culture that has some common cultural origins that you would reach for something at least that serves as a repository of ancient matters, right? Like we know that many of the Norse gods had continental Germanic counterparts at some point, for instance. So the idea that Germanic speaking peoples have some sort of shared history going way back is not the outrageous thing here. It's the essentialization of this heritage. That there is such a thing as one pure expression of Germanic culture. One Germanic way of being. One Germanic way of seeing things. One Germanic ethnicity. One Aryan race and civilization that must take precedence over everything else. A vision of the past that is very unfair to the historical reality. The historical fallout of this we're dealing with to this day, right? But that's not the only thing that is unfair about it either. And I got so many fucking things to say about it that I have to hold myself back from allowing the episode to regress and collapse into just one big rant on how history has done the reception of uh, Nordic cultural heritage. A huge and unfair disfavor, in my humble opinion. Or at least as humbly as I can put it. But don't you worry. That rant is coming when the time is right. Just listen for this sound. And with that, onwards to the next part of the episode. Once upon a time, there was an Austrian writer and journalist called Guido von Liszt. Initially, Guido von Liszt might seem like your regular pan-Germanic nationalist of his time. In the late 1800s, Liszt published a bunch of novels, plays and poems about an idealized Ario-heroic past and the religion of Wotanism, which was supposedly the public, vulgar expression of ancient Germanic Germanic faith. I say vulgar because this is what the common Germanic Germanic man believed, he says, because the true religion was of course revealed to elite initiates called Armanen, who served as the monotheistic spiritual aristocracy of the ancient Aryans, which was later forced to operate in secrecy after the Christianization. These works might have set the mythical foundation, but they would only be the prologue to what would become the true legacy of Guido von Liszt. In 1902, he spent a year in blindness after an eye surgery, and this of course gave him plenty of time to think about things. 
Coincidentally, he was struck by visions that revealed to him a brand spanking new runic alphabet, which von Liss claimed to be none other than the true magical cryptographic system of the ancient Almanen. These elite secrets were also encoded into European heraldry and transmitted among the German nobility, monastic orders, Renaissance hermeticists, the Knights Templar, and sundry secret societies through the ages. Now, these claims are not that crazy because this is basically what every other secret society does at the time as well. Not even a smidgen of this runic alphabet exists in the actual archaeological record, of course, but Guido did not let evidence stand in the way for his clairvoyant connection to the Ario-Germanic or Ario-Heroic past. Now, Guido von List might be the most famous and influential of the Ariosophist thinkers, but not necessarily the spiciest of the lot. He was basically the first truly modern rune magician, even though his system of Armanen Futhark differs significantly from the rune magic of your local New Age bookstore. I will not devote an entire episode to the finer points of his teachings, so you'll have to excuse me for skimming past it. But he did manage to become somewhat of a legend in his lifetime, with a society dedicated to the study and promotion of his work. A somewhat transparent rundown is provided in the book Wotan's Awakening by Eckhard Lente, noteworthy for being a, <laughs> a genuine admirer of Liszt's ideas, a sort of archivist of Listomania, if you will. Anyway, the book acts as a sort of biography for Guido von Liszt, where it actually works as a sort of historical source, as well as demonstrating how an Ariosophist thinks, basically. And of course, it's all nuts, but one thing I found quite useful was the demographic breakdown in the appendices of the members of the Guido von Liszt Society, which by the 1920s had amassed about 400 and something members, living or dead. And it just shows what sort of a hodgepodge of subcultural cross-pollination was going on at the time, some of which has nothing to do with fascism whatsoever. Some members were active in nationalist organizations or hiking clubs and all manner of secret societies. There were Martinists and Freemasons, Theosophists, believers in ancient astronauts. A couple of members were also in an early version of the Ordo Templi Orientis, later associated with the British occultist Aleister Crowley and his Thelemic teachings, which I was briefly involved with. Oh my god, I just cancelled myself. Then again, David Bowie, Jimmy Page, and Eirik Storrsson does sound like a good trio, so hmm. Anyway, among the members of the Guido von Liszt Society, you find people like Rudolf Seebottendorf, who was somehow a Muslim convert, Freemason, and also ultimately a Nazi. And let's not forget the Völkisch atheist Willibald Henschel of the Midgard Society, who argued that the Aryan race could be restored by creating massive harems in the German countryside, where the cream, the apex of Germanic stock, could bone all they wanted all day long, in colonial orgies where the men were outnumbered ten to one. And we should most definitely especially not forget the aforementioned Hermann Wirth, probably accounting for one of the two archaeologists who are registered in this society. You see all these breakdowns. One surgeon, 11 teachers, 17 military officers, two pastors, three astrologers, and then suddenly, one's eyes must inevitably stop at the one lone rabbi. And you're like, wait... This doesn't make any sense. A rabbi in the Guido von List society? Completely surrounded by anti-Semites on all sides? This is perplexing for those of us who are not living in Vienna in 1905, but that just goes to show that these were very confused times. There's a lot of fuckery here that just doesn't make any sense in hindsight, but that's how it goes. Anyway, despite the clear anti-Semitic circles that List worked in and contributed to, the Guido von List society had a dedicated bona fide fucking house rabbi, whose name was Moritz Altschuler who gave his Talmudic stamp of approval to all of Liszt's teachings. 
So in the worldview of Guido von Liszt, the Jews play a sort of backhanded role in all of this, since Liszt argues that Ario-Germanic secrets were passed down within Jewish mysticism, which gives them a slight pass. The Kabbalah, for instance, was originally uh, an Aryan art, confided from the Armanenschaft unto Rhineland Jews in the early medieval period. It also seems that von Liszt based the structure of the ancient Armanen priesthood on what he knew about Masonic structure, so it's not hard to imagine that this strange brew of Freemasonry, Theosophy, and Kabbalah did not fly very well with the Nazis later on, and all but a few such societies were outlawed entirely. Again, the Ariosophists were really a product of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, and the Weimar Republic. And it speaks specifically to the German paranoia and crisis of identity in this period of time and in these countries. Guido had many ideas that did not age very gracefully, one being that the First World War would result in the establishment of an Ario-Germanic empire ruled by the Habsburg dynasty. He's also got this whole shtick about how all lifespans are based on a mathematical formula of 7 times 7 or something, which somehow determines how long you're supposed to live. But if for whatever reason you die before that, if I understand correctly, you are immediately reborn to pick up the slack of your fated years. And some of his students seem to believe that that's why World War II happened, because, uh, well, the ghosts of the soldiers who died in the first one came of age. And this is where things get really fucked up in Freudian. Courtesy of Liszt's uh, unique interpretation of karma and reincarnation. Liszt is very interested in matriarchs in his pseudo-Wagnerian ontology, if you can call it that, and places some power and authority on the feminine, in priestesses and Valkyries and mothers very much, in sort of an Oedipal sense. So to von Liszt, Valkyries are not just the lovers of uh, heroes and fallen warriors, but these Valkyries are also their metaphysical mothers in the reincarnation, so... Um, like, there's some weird Marty McFly sort of shit, where you are born again by having sex with your mom. I hate to return to him, but this, uh, again, reminds me a lot about what Varg has said throughout the years. I can't help but recall the Kinky Runestones episode where we talked about the smoke rising through the chimney as a representation of fallen warriors climbing up the birth canal. And the reason why Santa Claus comes down the chimney is because he's the reincarnated ancestor. And the reason why he's red is not because of the branding team at Coca-Cola, but because he is actually a newborn infant who just popped out of somebody's vagina. What's he got in his sack? The gift of racial preservation. That's what every kid wants for Christmas, right? Say thank you, Santa. So I mentioned that the Von List Society had members from several other lodges who also claimed to carry the torch from the Knights Templar. This is one of many stock claims of Western esotericism, and obviously a matter of the inner mythology of these organizations, but they all have different teachings, so obviously they can't all literally be true. But this does not usually pose a problem, because you kind of just roll with it. There's an element of symbolic truth, or even make-believe, associated with participation in the occult. Historical authenticity is just not the point. The point is that the ideas have to be attractive to the right sort of people. We shouldn't even assume that every member of the Guido von List Society really even committed to the ideology it represented. People just like secret handshakes and clubhouses and a sense of being different. All of these groups, Ariosophists included, get off on the idea that they are not the mainstream, that their ideas are marginal, that they have access to a special toolkit that allows them to see the world for what it actually is. And when these people are tired of one thing, they move on to something else. The closest von Liszt's ideas ever came to achieving mainstream success is arguably in the fact that some of his students would later be connected to the SS, who secured him a partial legacy in scattered pieces of SS iconography, despite official party rejection of these ideas. This seems to be a bit of a sore point for Eckhart Lenta, for instance. This says a lot about the pragmatic approach that the Nazis had to myths and imagery. 
It's almost as if the sole reason for the existence of the controversial research ring of the SS, the Annenalbe, was to act as a sort of junkyard of motifs and narratives that the Nazis just kept around in case they needed it for some propaganda purpose. Though Hitler seems to have thought that this was quite anal retentive and even ridiculous. Now anyway, there's no use looking for coherence in the wider scene surrounding the Guido von Liszt society. You might think that since Liszt was heralded as a clairvoyant master with definite insight into arioheroic affairs, that the fanfiction of the expanded ariosophical universe would not stray too far from the canon. But boy would you be wrong. It's like a complete free-for-all where every student cooks up their own idiosyncratic spin-offs, much of which was also edited and published by Rabbi Altschuler, even though it's a complete mess of ideas that should somehow cancel each other out. I know, okay, uh, listener, please, I can hear you asking all the way from the future. Eirik, what the fuck does this have to do with the Onibuda? You told us that there would be aplings in this. Cute aplings that we could pet. First of all, you cocksucker, I never said they were cute, and I sure as hell did not say you could touch them. But thank fucking god we're almost there. It only took me 40 or so minutes of wading through German Mormonism. I hope you understand why this was necessary so that I can hopefully never speak about it again. Well you see, this all ties into one of the weirdest animes to the Ariosophical manga, concocted by the insane mind of one of Guido von Liszt's students, Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels. Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels was born in Vienna in 1874. Starting out as a dyed-in-the-wool Catholic, Liebenfels spent several years as a Cistercian monk at the Heiligenkreuz Abbey in Vienna before he was kicked out of the order in 1899. Monastic records state that the reason was because he was, quote, devoted to the lies of the world and gripped by carnal love. Hmm, interesting. Liebenfels's own side of the story is that um, he left due to a growing sense of unease, so make of that what you will. Either way, in 1905, he published a book by the title Theosologie, oder die Künde von den Sodoms Efflingen und dem Götterelektron, eine Einführung in die älteste und neueste Weltanschauung und eine Rechtfertigung des Fürstentums und des Adels. So in the English tongue that would be Theozoology, or the science of the sodomite aplings and the divine electron, an introduction to the most ancient and most modern philosophy, and a justification of the monarchy and the nobility. This was in many ways a standalone expansion pack on some of the stuff that he'd written for a Bible studies journal edited by Moritz Altschuler, who was also a member of the Guido von Liszt Society, as we've already said. Liebenfels also founded his own society called Ordo Novi Templi, that is, the Order of the New Templars, as well as a journal called Ostara, noteworthy for the fact that he would grotesquely exaggerate how many readers it had. But back to his magnum opus, Theozoology. This is the general rundown as far as I can make sense of it. Liebenfels believed that the Aryan race was derived from divine space-traveling entities called Theozoa, who reproduced electrically and fostered a race of people with electromagnetic superpowers on the continent of Atlantis. What happened to Atlantis? Well, it sank, which led the Atlanteans to scatter all over the place, chiefly via the Germanic heartlands, which I'm sure is just coincidental. <laughs> So it was cool for a while, but then things started going south in the Orient, but more about that later. Atlantis passed, but not the Atlantean religion. What kind of religion was this, we may ask, but that doesn't mean we should. Did they have many gods? Did they worship in temples or outdoors? Did they practice animal sacrifice or encourage reserved contemplation on elevated things? No, it's all racial navel-gazing. Who fucks who? When can I fuck? Who can I fuck? Who should I not fuck? and an entire eschatology based on what comes out the other side. 
if the right or wrong people fuck. Liebenfels invites us to ponder the greatest existential question of them all, whether or not Germans are fucking, and mull over all the miseries that arise from the fact that good Germans are either not fucking, not fucking the right people, or fucking the wrong ones. Does this mean that Liebenfels is sex positive? That he encourages people to fuck? Not necessarily. It's more like a necessary evil, you might say. Liebenfels insists that a lot of ancient figures were eager practitioners of this racial religion, including Moses of biblical fame, Orpheus of Greek legend, and the philosophers Plato and Pythagoras. Did I mention that Jesus was electric and had electric superpowers? It is said and indeed written that idle hands are the devil's playthings. Ariosophy was widely known and respected all over the world until some eastern Atlanteans started experimenting sexually the root of all evil, and they did so by fucking the lesser races, gradually producing unspeakable monsters hitting rock bottom with something that Liebenfels calls sodomite aplings, and I'll be a monkey's uncle. They turned out to be a hit! The sodomite aplings would soon prove themselves to be the most formidable foe and greatest existential threat to the Ariosophical religion. An ape craze washed across the Mediterranean, Overcome by an unhealthy obsession with ape sex, the Hellenistic, Egyptian, and Roman civilizations began importing aplings from the east and began using them both as a source of pleasure and entertainment, sometimes even a weapon. Liebenfels provides enthusiastic depictions of how the Egyptians used to doll up their little monkey lovers in provocative outfits, and how the Romans delighted in seeing them perform little shows in the Colosseum. When the Germanic tribes ultimately adopted Ario-Christianity, all of the racist bits was cut out of the Gothic Bible by the Romans, which is the only thing that kept the Germans from backbreeding back into electric godmen. <clears throat> so, uh, how does Liebenfels reach these conclusions? I mean, what are his sources? We've already been through the basics of the Ariosophical worldview. That's where he kind of skips some citations. A lot of his arguments are based on imagery from some of the cultures he's talking about, much of which I certainly could not verify, or otherwise it seems kind of taken out of context. Like, or Assyrian stonework of what appears to be quasi-anthropomorphic ape dwarves held in leashes. Okay. Looking over the illustrations, I have to admit that there is something a little bit off about the dopey expressions in their faces, and the way that their monkey paws kind of look like oversized gloved hands in the manner of Mickey Mouse. But again, this iconography is difficult for me to verify, and I cannot guarantee that it has not been tampered with by Liebenfels himself. In a way, I hope not, because I'm, I gotta admit, I'm kinda rooting for the little guys. Got a soft spot for him. But Liebenfels's main source is the good book, the Bible. And to a great extent, the book Theozoology is basically a masterwork of Bible revisionist insanity. I trust that most listeners are at least superficially familiar with the Bible, and Liebenfels argues that there are basically two levels to it. Not completely unusual in like esoteric discussions necessarily, but he says that there is one false superficial level where words mean what they are usually taken to mean, but then there's the true esoteric decoder ring level where Liebenfels operates. According to his research, many common nouns in the Bible don't mean what they seem to, but the true message is plain as day to those people who have been initiated into the secrets of Ario-Christianity, as it were. Luckily, Liebenfels knows these secrets like the hole in his pocket, and he's eager to show you what's beyond. You know, the Bible is full of weird and complicated words like fish and gold and grain and meat and such. Well, how is anybody supposed to know what that means? Liebenfels knows, and as it turns out, most of these words mean apes, aplings, ape sex, ape sodomy, apes of Sodom, sex with apes, sex apes, ape fucking, ape fuckery, apes fucking people, people fucking apes, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's mostly variations on that theme. 
And here's an interesting nuance to this. Uh, Liebenfels does not always use these terms consistently. For instance, he says plainly that fish is a code word for these lewd ape men. But of course, the fish is also a symbol of Jesus. And Liebenfels references this uh, without explaining to us whether we're supposed to understand uh, that Jesus is an apeling himself. Um, which seems counterintuitive because he explains in other contexts that uh, that, uh, that Jesus is a primeval man. And he has this kind of difficult-to-grasp passage about the dual nature of Christ, which I couldn't quite get a grip on. So in other contexts, it's clear that uh, Jesus is this transcendent being, but he also at some point describes Jesus as a divine figure in ape flesh. Or something along those lines. Uh, and I think what Liebenfels is trying to signal here is that, of course, Jesus appears as a man of flesh and blood, but he's not actually of that nature. Which is certainly not the, the most uh, controversial theological claim in this book, but uh, that would probably explain one of the most confusing aspects of the book, namely that uh, Liebenfels sometimes talks about literal aplings, uh, which it seems like he believes actually existed, but then he also uses apling metaphorically all the time. And he extends this metaphor to human beings, and often human beings of an ethnic background that he deems undesirable. In describing the miracles of Jesus, Liebenfels put quite an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is sometimes described as surrounded by a shining light, which of course demonstrates the idea that Jesus was an electric superperson. When Jesus healed lepers, it is confirmed scientifically by the use of radiation in modern medicine. The only real other thing to know about Jesus is that all his other miracles are basically about how he travels around sabotaging the apeling sex industry. When he chased the moneylenders out of the temple, those were actually ape sellers running a sodomite prostitution ring. When he met the woman at the well, he actually stopped her from boning an ape. Give me the water of life, Jesus, she begged him. And he told her, in no uncertain terms, to extract it from a human partner instead of a sodomite goblin. And of course, this applies to the Old Testament as well. When the Israelites are walking around the desert hungry for meat for, I don't know, 40 fucking years, begging Moses, please give us meat. What do you think they wanted? A snack? No, they were saying, we're horny, give us the apes, give us the apes, please. But Liebenfels does not explain what the manna falling from heaven is supposed to represent. What about the biblical story of Daniel in the lion's den, so often repeated and copied in Germanic Iron Age art? You guessed it, it's goblin buggery all the way down. It should be noted that it's not entirely self-evident what Liebenfels means when he applies the term sodomite to something. In keeping with his Manichaean worldview, he uses it as a prefix for anything he doesn't like. There are sodomite gardens, sodomite foods, sodomite rocks, and so on. What exactly he means by this, I don't really have a fucking clue. Apart from the fact that it's clearly not a good thing. You might have heard the story about when Jesus fed 5,000 people with some fishes and a few loaves of bread. So what actually happened here, according to Liebenfels, is that Jesus and his apostles were traveling around with a bunch of ape men and chanced upon this massive crowd of people and their apeling pleasure slaves. So as far as I can tell, Jesus offered them the bread and the fish, which is of course code for the apeling entourage that he had with him for whatever reason. But as he does this, he also gives them a sermon. And by the time his sermon is over, he's completely killed the boners of all the people present, who had completely lost their appetite for sodomite aplings. 
and instead turned their own aplings over to the disciples, uh, I don't know, to have them euthanized, I guess. Aplings are not the only sodomite creatures in the theozoology mythos, by the way. At some point, he argues briefly for the existence of mermaids and mermen, who are supposed to have attended Roman orgies in vast numbers. The Egyptians, he alleges, were known to trap crocodiles and fuck them as well. And when Pythagoras is supposed to have said, Miserable world, abstain from the enjoyment of beans! Liebenfels says, Beans? This harmless little vegetable? This must certainly mean something else entirely. Of course, it's a Pizzagate-like codeword for some widespread sodomite menace. Painting an all-round picture of the ancient Mediterranean as a place brimming with obscene sexual petting zoos, bursting at the seams with apish fornication. But what does Liebenfels have to say about the single most important event in Christianity? You know, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ who, according to mainstream Christianity, died for the sins of man and was then miraculously resurrected after three days. This is what justifies the entire Christian faith, so of course Liebenfels would be interested in this event. But according to him, none of this is literally true as it is presented to us, but an allegory of events that were so dark and so gruesome that nobody even wanted to talk about it directly. In this version, it is true that Jesus was restrained, humiliated, tortured, dragged through the streets, but not nailed to a cross per se. But in one completely different sense, boy did he get nailed. Which is why I'm getting hammered the moment this episode is over. This marks the climax of the book Theozoology. And Liebenfels does not disappoint in his riveting and animated account of the molestation of Christ by the hypersexed aplings leaving just enough to the imagination for it to be highly suggestive. In Liebenfels's own words, <clears throat> The crucifixion consisted of binding wild and unruly sodomite monsters to poles in order to be able to copulate with them without danger. On the other hand, however, people were bound to such poles in order to have them sodomized by lascivious aplings. This was the torture to which early Christians were put, and that was also the torture of Jesus. In other words, what the crucifixion actually meant was that when Jesus was surrendered to the mob, he was tied up and molested by aplings, after which he spent three nights in some underground hobgoblin sex den fighting off the wanton beasts. He took it, not willingly, but for the team. Quote, Christ was outraged by the sodomite hobgoblins. If he consented to this willingly and if he was overcome by temptation, then his whole mission would have been dashed. Try to imagine yourself in the shoes of Jesus' uh, ariosophical disciples. The world must have seemed like a very dark place that day. Could this truly be the end of the ario-heroic race and the Atlantean lineage? A world resigned to the apling hordes, scratching, screaming, squealing, fucking fornication unending apling panspermia a world of unceasing fuck no because on the third day he broke out of the sodomite cave, toppled the sodomite stone, defeated the sodomite guards, and then presented his disciples with the marks, scratches, and bites that the aplings had made when they ravaged his body. 
And ever since, Liebenfels says, all true Christians proudly displayed the wounds that aplings left on them as a symbol of their piety during the Roman persecution against them, which was to follow in the centuries to come. And this is where Liebenfels tells the moral of the story. The secret of Christianity, the Trinity, now reveals itself as a great anthropology, he says. Father, Spirit, and Son are the three stages of evolution of higher, white mankind. The resurrection must once more occur from within the human species. The suffering of Jesus is in fact the very same that faces mankind today. But in the future, the Aryans will be elevated back into their former glory. But to achieve this, he says, those of inferior genetic stock must be sterilized and ultimately eradicated. He bemoans how German men are just getting better and more handsome, while German women are only getting worse and more sinful. He warns against brotherly love, a lie supposedly concocted by sodomite aplings to destroy the German people, and argues for a totalitarian state where welfare is paid out on the basis of good genetics. This system will be to the benefit of two particular ethnic groups, he says. First of all, Germans, and then in a statement that aged particularly badly, Jews of Israeli descent. He argues for a society that is basically chaste, and where people reproduce strictly for the sake of eugenics. This is especially important to Liebenfels because he believes that children are born with the characteristics of each and every sexual partner that the mother ever had. If the sick and inferior are barred from reproducing altogether, then hospitals and prisons will no longer be necessary, because people of good genetic stock are also morally good by default. In the future, there will be no more romantic relations at all, as we know them. No more couples, no marriages, we won't need them. The ultimate goal is to breed upwards into the state symbolized by the resurrection of Jesus. That humanity must reach the kingdom of God by becoming an angelic race of hermaphrodites, who will not and cannot reproduce sexually, but instead reproduce by radiation. Humanity will exist in a Valhalla, where no apeling must be permitted to pass through its pearly gates. The biggest obstacle to attaining this, he says, is women's rights. Now I'm gonna give you guys a condensed reading of some of the final pages of Theozoology, just to give you a taste of his repressed rambling style. With the same sort of snobbish, self-serving tone that you might expect from a manifesto penned by a modern incel. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, we must become eunuchs. As highly as we honor the wife and the family and in the home, we must just as intensely fight against the intrusion of women into public life. Because the ultimate outcome of these efforts would be, and to some extent is already, unilateral women's rights, which would make the world into a big brothel, in which everything revolves around penises and pussies in a silly and absurd satyr's orgy while the proper wife, the loyal mother of the house, and the healthy, strong troop of children will be mercilessly driven out of the chaste and legitimate home. No one other than those women, with their lascivious ape-like natures, destroyed the cultures of antiquity, and they will bring down our culture as well, if men do not stop and think soon. Dear ladies, tell me honestly whose wives would you be today if noble men if godlike Siegfrieds had not torn you away from the sodomite monsters, if they had not put you in warm nests, 
if they had not defended you, sword in hand, throughout thousands and thousands of years against Slavs, Mongols, Moors, and Turks. Choose between us and those sons of Sodom. Have yourself sexually serviced on the mound of corpses of your husbands who fell in battle, as so many of your mother's mothers did. Take them to your husband's houses so they can make harem slaves of you, so you can become the mother of a brood of lascivious bloodthirsty beasts who know no motherly or wifely love. What woman is today, she has become thanks to the sword and power of man. Man wrestled woman from the apes of Sodom. And for this reason, she is his property. I can think of only two reasons why Liebenfels's theozoology became anything more than a cum stain on the already crusty sheet of early 20th century folkish ideas. For one thing, it's fascinating how he managed to produce a subplot that is more compelling than the main message of his religion. Whether by design or accident, we don't remember theozoology for its electric Aryans, but you will never wipe your brain clean of the apes of Sodom. The other reason, I think, is because Liebenfels was a mythomaniac who lied constantly about the range of influence he had on the fate of Germany. Liebenfels claimed that his magazine, Ostara, had about 100,000 fucking subscribers in its heyday, which is absolutely nuts. I'll eat my fucking hat if that's true. Some of the biggest and most nefarious Volkish organizations had like 1,500 members. Besides this, he jumped on the Nazi bandwagon almost immediately and basically claimed himself as their main influence. So, for comparison, Guido von List, who was nowhere near as extreme as this, had a way bigger influence on Völkisch circles, and the Guido von List society managed to peak at about 300-400 members across the fucking world. So you can tell me what the most credible statistic is here. I have not gone out of my way to get a good understanding of the timeline and development of his ideas. I only know that at some point, Liebenfels devised an entire system of phrenology based on the shape of people's asses. Apparently a nice, thick ass was the mark of the true Aryan. Besides claiming to be the main inspiration behind Nazi racial doctrine, Liebenfels also claimed that the Nazis took the swastika straight from him. But there's really no evidence to support this whatsoever. There's also no evidence backing up his claim that he used to have frequent audiences with Hitler early in his career. In fact, there's no reason to believe they knew each other at all. He's also believed to have exaggerated his connection to the Swedish playwright August Strindberg. But he did apparently write letters to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche replied telling Liebenfels to never bother him again. The main reason why Liebenfels endures to this day is because he stuck to his story, and because people in the post-war period desperately wanted some kind of kooky, compelling explanation for the evils of the Nazi regime. Such a lack of critical thought is often seen in more popular books touching upon religion and the occult in the Third Reich, even today. Which is why I even have to point this out. Far from deterring people, these anachronisms serve to justify and legitimize the perspectives of people like Liebenfels in neo-Nazi subcultures, while also giving the historical Nazis an air of mystique that uh, they frankly don't deserve. Nicholas Goodrich Clark points out that Ariosophy's relation to later Nazism is first and foremost as one of many independent symptoms of Austro-German identity politics at the turn of the century, and both of them represent responses to German insecurities and inferiority complexes at that particular time in that part of Europe. If we're talking about actual ancient Germanic-speaking societies who at various points in time inhabited everything from Crimea in the east to Langobardic Italy, Visigothic Spain, 
all the way up to Scandinavia at different points in time. It's obvious that all of these cultures have certain things in common. But the essentialization of all things Germanic, as if there are no vernacular differences or local idiosyncrasies, that Germanic cultures should not only be unified but backbred into something it never was, is a fantasy, a complete fabrication, one that, as we have seen, often bears no similarity with the real thing at all. And part of that fantasy is the implicit vilification of the ancient Germanic past that comes with this notion that that is what the Germans wanted to achieve. On the one hand, the Nazi mainstream did not really love these ariosophical movements that much in return. But it's closer to the ideology than this notion that the Nazis were really, really fucking into Vikings, you know? And I don't mean fucking Vikings in the Liebenfeldian sense. I mean, like, being into Old Norse, admiring ancient Scandinavia. I mean, the Nazis did it when it suited them, right? But that's a quirk of German nation-building, you know, crossbreeding with their imperialist project. I said how the essentialization of Germanic particularity doesn't respect historical reality. The same applies to the sort of barbarian scapegoat that has been used to explain Germany's role in World War II. I talked about this in one of the Valhalla episodes, but I wanted to touch upon it again, just so we have the point clear here, in a different context. It's just very tiring to see Norse culture crushed under the steamroller of suspicion, instead of all the other stuff that was going on under Hitler, right? Like having a massive hard-on for Martin Luther. Like when did you ever hear somebody say, you know the Nazis were really into being Protestant? You don't really hear that, do you? It's because it costs modern people a lot more to deal with coming to terms with Nazi Christianity. While it's no sacrifice at all to blame it all on obscure shit that you don't even care about. The point is not to have another tired conversation pinning paganism and Christianity against each other. The point is that all of this has to be investigated and scrutinized so that we can finally get past this sin of implied barbarism just for being interested in the past in the first place. I want to say that this is almost unique to interest in ancient Germanic culture and Scandinavia. But you see it sometimes with the medieval period and the ancient Mediterranean as well. That there's something dirty and suspicious about being too into this stuff. I mean, it's a bummer for humanity if we are only allowed to indulge in contemporary culture or interact with epochs that share contemporary values. Imagine blocking yourself off from most human experience through the ages. Because of this, some people feel the need to make a fucking disclaimer every time they profess a fascination with past matters. Like the past is not allowed to exist without Nazis kind of looming over it or something like that. And it's not just because neo-Nazis exist who happen to be interested in the past. Because these people will exist whether we like it or not. No, it's because Nazis are living rent-free in people's fucking heads. Like cryogenically frozen in small compartments or something. Where everything is like a, a cosmic battle to justify their interest. And people are asking each other for permission on what kind of fucking media they're allowed to listen to or whatever fucking shit. And I got the cure right here. Do your own thing and let the past speak for itself, warts and all. The main reason why this is even a topic, why this is even a subject that I have to talk about in this sort of way, is because this horseshit has been repeated so many times that it's become fucking true. So people are taking this claim that the Nazis were super into the past, and they're not, like, investigating it further or anything. As if Hitler was a fucking Renaissance humanist. On the other hand, if you're one of those people, one of those assholes who look back at the Third Reich as if they were fucking, like, on their knees, trying to get to grips on what it fucking means, you know? If you're one of those people who look back, you know, to the Third Reich and think that these people gave a fucking shit about this stuff that is displayed in our museums or the stuff that I'm trying to promote with Brute Norse, you know, a genuine interest in the past and a reminder that the past is actually here with us today, you know, I'm sorry. You know, you gotta fucking wake up, because you've been strung along.
I just want to get to grips with things. This thing we call history. What is the fucking past anyway? I want to understand my connection to my ancestors. I want to understand what it means to be a human being. And the best I can do is try to understand the origins of my culture. I want to grab onto it and hold it like a monkey clutches a fucking tree branch. Now, most of my listeners are American, and uh, no offense to you guys, but I feel like Americans are more likely than others to treat the past as just a pawn in the culture war. And it's so instrumental, it's such a fucking loss. And I'm not saying that everybody here thinks like this, but I live in the United States, and I'm also online, so it's kind of unavoidable to have to deal with this kind of horseshit. Personally, I don't think that way at all. And maybe I'm clutching extra hard because I'm living in a context where I'm alienated from that stuff, you know, that otherwise would have just felt like it was right around me all the time. And to be fair, I think that most Norwegians probably take this stuff for granted as well. And that's where you take that stuff for granted. But not because they're told they have no history. It's because they're so secure that they think they don't even have to give a shit about it. When I pass a site with a certain place name, or I speak my mother's tongue, rowing my grandfather's old boat, or seeing a burial mound in the landscape, I know that all of these things have some cultural connection to each other, right? That this is the result of a cultural development, and that this ties into a conception of what I am. What are we if not the stories we tell, right? This is partially the realm of myth. And there's a tendency to be reductionistic about this stuff. Like people say, oh, this stew is not really an Irish stew. Potatoes grow anywhere else in the world. There's nothing particularly Irish about this configuration, but it is. It doesn't mean that the Irish have a fucking monopoly on stew. There has to be some kind of anchor for everybody. And I can promise you, most people who don't have such anchors are miserable. These narratives, these conceptualizations are important. It's important to know when to interrogate them, know when to celebrate them, all of that shit. They're not the property of states, political movements, fads, or anything else. Now I know that you guys listening to this don't need to hear this because you are wise and beautiful and, and you, you can see the big picture in things. I just want to remind you that not everybody thinks about this way that some people out there do. Continuing on this loaded theme of cultural heritage and where it ties into, say, pop culture, the market of ideas and whatnot, some people get into this because they watch a few superhero movies or Vikings on History Channel and then they decide, ah, oh, Vikings are cool, maybe I'll give neo-paganism and Norse mythology a spin. Or they take their Ozatru and make it a an asset for their political activism or some shit like that. Okay, cool, knock yourself out. To a certain extent, you could say that all human behavior is justified aesthetically, so I'm not gonna tell you that that's not a valid way to get into it. If that's what brought you here, that's fine. But I'm not here to justify some shit that I picked up on the marketplace of ideas. And I am not here to tell you this is what you're supposed to believe, this is how you're supposed to think. No, I am here to promote and discuss and interrogate my own cultural history and the tangents that that touches, including the things that are difficult to talk about about it. And I have blinkers, I have blind spots, I'm subjective, all of that stuff. I have weird beliefs and off-color humor and perhaps unorthodox opinions on some of these things. But the last thing I want, dear listener, is to impose them on you. What I can promise is that I'll never piss on your head and tell you it rains. This is what I mean when I talk about Scandi futurism. Know thyself. This is the point where I'm supposed to do a pitch for the Brute Norse Patreon, but I don't know, either you like it or you don't. If you want to support me, you can find the relevant links in the show notes below, along with relevant literature and whatnot. I'm just happy to be done with this fucking episode. But as always, my name is Erik Storsen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast where we walk backwards into the future. And by backwards into the future, of course I mean fucking sodomite aplings.